Today isn't specifically a Father's Day message. It, it certainly can uh, make us better fathers. And so since it's not a Father's Day message, I just wanted to briefly say uh, a short thing to the fathers. Uh, for one, a, a great father uh, is not here. Pastor Sam texted me this morning and he uh, told me to tell you that he wished that he was here, uh, though he is doing one of his heart's uh, passions in, in spreading the gospel through meeting practical needs in Mexico. And, um, you know, just a quick word about fatherhood. Uh, as fathers, we have the opportunity to show our children what God is like, like nobody else in the whole world can. And I've learned that through our children, we can learn things about God in ways that we never could have as fathers uh, through the experiences that we get. And so uh, before I get started, I just want to pray for, for the dads real quick. And, and if you're a father, uh, you can put your hand on your heart with me if you'd like. Uh, Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for the unique opportunity that you have given us to uh, be a witness and example to our children of who you are, Lord. And Father, I pray that we would not view our um, opportunity to be a father as anything less than that, Lord. But Father, that you would raise up men who would rise to the task of showing our children what you are like, that you are full of grace and mercy and wrath and jealousy and discipline and love, Lord. Father, help us to, to, to live our life in that delicate balance, Lord God, and, and reveal to our children who you are, Lord. And Father, teach us things about you, we pray, uh, through our kids, Lord God. Teach us about the uh, frustrations and, and disappointments that you have with us, your children, Lord, but that uh, where all those things exist, that love and grace abound, Lord. Help us to know these things more. Uh, through being a father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you will, uh, we're going to be reading out of Philippians mostly today. And uh, so if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, that is uh, our primary text today. We got the coffee shakes this morning. Um, so let me read the passage, and, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into uh, the sermon. Philippians 1.27 Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit, and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. So let's pray before we get into the sermon. Father, we need your help today, God. Lord, we need eyes to see and ears to hear, God. And Lord, Father, I just pray right now that, that you would come and, and make our hearts uh, tender, soft, receptive soil for your word, Lord. Father, I pray that, that the cares of this life would not choke out the word, Lord God, but Father, that we could lay those things aside and... Um, and, and Lord, focus on you and your word and what you would have to say for us now, to us now, Lord God. Father, I pray that you would make us deep and wide, Lord, that the, that the word would go down deep into our hearts. And Father God, take root, Lord, and, and spring up and produce much fruit in our lives, Lord. Father, we're not here, God, to, to check off a box. We're not here to uh, go through the motions, Lord. We need you to come and change us. And make us more like Jesus, Lord. So, Father, we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit right now, Lord. Father, I pray that, that you would help me by your Spirit to stay faithful to your word, Lord. 
For there is nothing that I can say in my own strength that will help anyone in this place, God. But by your Spirit, Lord God, we believe that we will be changed today to be made more like Jesus. And so, God, we ask for that. We ask for your awesome power to change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, there are some major implications in this text uh, that, that, that lie underneath the words. And just quickly, to kind of give you a high-level picture, I'll list out those three implications, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into the passage itself. Uh, implication number one is this. There is a certain way that believing Christians should live our lives. Implication number two, this type of living will result in great opposition from unbelievers around us. Implication number three, however, we are to live a bold and risk-taking life for the sake of the gospel despite the opposition that exists all around us. So those are the major implications of the text And now I'd like to take it a piece and a verse at a time. So let's start over. Let's go back to the beginning uh, in verse 27. I'm going to read you the first half. 127. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Now, Paul is calling us here to a certain type of lifestyle. He commands us to live a life worthy of the gospel, the good news. And that's what gospel means. Gospel means good news. That's what that uh, word actually means. So what is the gospel? I'd like to spend about a minute or two on that. The gospel is the fact that all humanity is in rebellion and sin against our perfectly holy and glorious God. We are all born dead in our sin and blind to the glory of God and the truth that would save us. Our sin has kindled the holy wrath of God, and because we have violated the glory of an infinite God, the deserving punishment is infinite. That punishment is a horrendous eternity in a place of torture and darkness and separation from all things good called hell. But, and here's the good news, but God in His rich mercy and grace and kindness sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to become a man Jesus, who is God Himself, humbled Himself in flesh, was tempted in every way without sin, and dwelt among sinful humanity. Though He was the only man who was ever truly innocent, Jesus suffered total humiliation and pain in crucifixion as payment for our sin. He was buried and dead for three days. Then on the third day, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, He burst forth in power from the grave in a glorified body. Now all who will believe on His finished work on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, all who will trust in Him as the means of the payment for their sin and follow Him as their Lord and their means of joy and satisfaction will be saved from God's wrath and brought into everlasting joy and satisfaction. That is the gospel that we're talking about in this passage. So I just want to, before we got into the Word, before we got into being called to living a life worthy of the gospel, marvel for a second at this great gospel that saved us. And if you are a believer here, Marvel at the great salvation that God has worked in your life and worship Him for it. Right now in your heart, think about how awesome this salvation is and worship Him for it in your heart. And if you are an unbeliever here, 
I pray that God would give you eyes to see the glory of the gospel and ears to hear its truth. And I pray that in your heart right now that you would just say yes to Jesus because He is calling you. And I ask you right now, won't you just come? So I want everybody, when I was preparing this, I just the Lord just said, just stop here for a second. So let's just stop. I want everybody to close your eyes and listen to my voice. Father, I, I pray for anyone in this place who does not know you, Lord. I pray for those who, who, who do everything under the sun to find satisfaction and worth and the meaning of life and come up empty every time. For Lord, we know, God, that everything that we do to try to find satisfaction in this life uh, always leaves us more thirsty. It always leaves us wanting more. And so, God, I speak to that person now, and I say, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the, is the living water for which we come and we drink and we are satisfied. And so God, I just pray right now for anyone who, who, who has never been born again, Lord, I pray that you would give them a new heart, Lord God, that you would cause them to burst forth in life right now in faith and belief in Jesus name. Lord, work that work right now by the power of your gospel, I pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So that's the gospel that we are to live a life worthy of. And the point of the, the point of this text is that uh, we are to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of this good news that I just went over. Now, many of you will notice uh, if you're reading in uh, either the New King James or the ESV that this word, this short phrase, citizens of the gospel, uh, is actually not in, uh, or, or citizens of heaven is not in uh, your translation. And when I started to study this, I was kind of confused and baffled. A lot of times I'll go to the, the literal uh, interle- interlinear translation to get a good idea of what it means, and it was just kind of glaring that that word citizens of heaven wasn't there. And uh, so I kind of dug in a little bit, and what I found was is that the translators of the New Living Translation actually chose to be redundant uh, to really nail home the point of what the, the words here actually mean. Uh, because the meaning uh, of the word conduct yourselves, which is in your all translations, conduct yourselves, uh, the, the Greek word for that actually implies to live the life of a citizen. It doesn't mean just mean act a certain way. It means to live as if you were a citizen of a certain um, sovereignty or or nation or people. Uh, so this verse could be translated, live the life of a citizen that is worthy of the gospel. Because you see, we are not first citizens of this world or of the United States of America, although God, God does command us that we are to be subject to the governing authorities over us and that we are uh, indeed uh, not out of His will by being proud to be an American. But we are not first of this world, nor are we first of America, but we have a higher citizenship as the people of God. We have an allegiance and a citizenship that extends beyond this nation and beyond this life. So let me uh, make it just a little bit clearer. If you turn one page, one or two pages over to Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. Here's here's same word, different... Um, same word used for conduct yourself in the other passage, uh, just a different tense. But we, verse 20, but we are citizens of heaven. 
where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as Savior. He will take our weak, mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. So, we are citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, we are we do not live for the appetites of self-glorification and the glory of this world. Rather, we seek first God's glory at the cost of our own humility and loss. You see, those who are of the world find their joy, or they try to find their joy, in the things of this world. They make their decisions on how they can receive glory from others and on how they can hold on to the treasures of this life. Money, fame, renown, power, you name it. Those are the things that the citizens of this world crave for and live for. Citizens of heaven gladly lose the things of this world in order to give glory to God and to store up for themselves heavenly treasure. So let's continue in our main text and see what it means to live as a citizen of heaven, to live worthy of the gospel. So back to verse 27. I'm going to read through 28. Above all, one, chapter 1, verse 27. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. Now, you're going to notice something about this passage. You're going to notice that none of these ways to live worthy of the gospel are given as commands to individuals, but rather they are given as corporate commands for the church to carry out as a body. Uh, so that's something uh, that we won't get into too much, but, but, you know, we say it a lot. We need each other. We need each other. We need to be um, about the business of gathering together corporately here on Sunday mornings consistently. And we need to be about the business of taking part of small group activities like Sunday circles and small groups and home groups so that we can build relationships so that in those moments when we need somebody, there's a relationship with other believers that we can stand on. These commands are given to a corporate church for a reason, because we can't do this on our own. You will not be successful living a life worthy of the gospel if you come to church once a month and you have no relationship with anybody in the church. We need each other. And so I want to encourage you to have this encourage you to connect with your church body. So... uh in this passage, in these two verses, I see at least four ways, at least, that we are to live worthy of the gospel. Number one, living worthy of the gospel means persevering resistance and opposition together. Starting in uh, the, about the middle of verse 27, he says, I will know that you are standing together. This phrase, standing together, literally means to stand fast, to stand firm, to persevere. What does that imply? It implies that as believers of Christ in a lost and fallen world, we should expect opposition, resistance, and oppression. We should not be surprised whenever uh, we express our faith and there is a negative reaction to it. The Bible prepares us very well for that. And so we've got to stop being surprised about these things. We need to stop being surprised when, our, when the secular government and the secular media oppose our faith and our beliefs. 
Jesus said in John 16:33 that in this world we will have many trials and sorrows. So I'm going to tell you today that the answer is not for our government and our media to become Christian friendly. That is not the answer. That is not how we win. The answer is for Christ to be powerfully proclaimed by the church at great cost to ourselves. That's the answer. You see, throughout American history, and in most parts of the world today, being a Christian means at best being ostracized from family and society, and at worst, a terrible and torturous death. Did you know that there are people all over the world who are having their heads removed from their bodies, who are being crucified like our Lord because they proclaim faith in Jesus? To this day, the scripture in Romans is being fulfilled that, that all day long we are being slaughtered like sheep for your name. That's still being prophetically fulfilled 2,000 years after the, the Apostle Paul spoke it in his letter to the Romans all over the world. There is great opposition in this world to our faith. And it exists today. Yet here in America... We oftentimes are worried that people are going to think that we're a little bit weird. You know, we need to put these things in perspective. It's time to wake up. It's time to stand fast. It's time to take real risk for the gospel and stop worrying that people might think that we are odd or that we are different, because I want to tell you, we are odd, and we are different. We are a special, peculiar people called by God out of a lost and dying world to glorify Him forever. That's who we are. So we got to expect these things. So the first, the first way that we live worthy of the gospel is to live in such a way that when the world opposes us, we stand firm with the church. We stand and we persevere and we, per- we, 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 we stand fast against the current of the culture and the world with the church. Number two, living worthy of the gospel is being changed in such a way that it creates unity in the church. Verse 27, again in the middle. I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose. And with an emphasis on one spirit, one purpose. Let me define what he's saying here. He's talking about the qualities regarded as forming the definitive or typical elements in a group, specifically in the church, in this church. Um says we must be changed such that we have one mind. And the reference here is to the soul as the seat of our affections and the seat of our will. So the sentence here, this, this sentence in the Scripture could be rephrased like this. I will know that you are standing together as a church with common defining characteristics because you love the same things and you want to do the same things. Now that's kind of weird and countercultural, right? Because the first thing that our flesh might say is, well, I'm an individual. I don't have to love what other people love. And I don't have to do what other people do. I do what I love and what I want to do, right? Well, That may be culturally accurate, but that is definitely not biblically accurate at all. Uh, Let me give you an Old Testament prophetic scripture about how God defined the new covenant, which the new covenant is uh, the gospel, what we talked about earlier. It's the gospel uh, that, that any lost, dying sinner who trusts and believes and, and clings to Christ will be brought from death into everlasting joy and satisfaction. That's the new covenant. And so uh, in some of these Old Testament prophetic scriptures, God gives us some real insight into what actually happens 
on the inside of us when we're born again. So I'm pretty sure I have this in my notes to put it up on the screen there. Uh, So I put it up there. I underlined some stuff because I want you to see some stuff. So uh, read along with me. Jeremiah 32, 38. They will be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them, tell me if this sounds familiar, and I will give them one heart and one purpose to worship me forever for their own good and for the good of all their descendants. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good for them. I will put a desire, that's the will, that's the affections, I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me, and they will never leave me. You see, when we are born again, there is not just an understanding about facts about Jesus. Now, involved in being born again is believing a set of facts about Jesus, certain things that he did, but there's so much more. There is a radical and supernatural transformation of who we are. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And so you see what happens when we're born again, God gives us a new heart. Another passage says that He takes out the heart of stone and He puts in a heart of flesh, a tender, responsive heart that loves to obey his commandments, that, that, that no longer has to obey an external set of rules that go against everything that, that I want to do on the inside. No, he transplants that heart that is in rebellion against him and he puts in a new heart that loves to obey his commandment, that has a will that desires to follow Christ, that has desires to, to put ourselves under him. That, that is, that is the, the new birth as defined by the Bible. When Jesus came, he redefined the law and summarized this in his two great commandments. When asked what the most important commandment was, Jesus replied in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So at the heart of the new covenant is a changed heart that desires certain things. Those things are to love God and His glory supremely, and to, and to love others like we love ourselves. These desires are the defining mark of a born-again believer. So can we flash back to um, the Jeremiah passage, just kind of as I go through this before I get to the third point here? Uh, just as I talk, look at the passage from Jeremiah. Under the everlasting covenant, God is the one who gives His church one heart, one purpose, and our new desires. So, you know, let's ask the practical question here. Well, I thought I was a Christian, or I am a Christian, and I I know I'm a Christian, um, but what do I do if I love my hobby, or my job, or the television more than I love God? What do I do? This is what I think at least we should be doing. We learn scriptures like Jeremiah 32, 38 through 40, and we pray fervently that God would give us that kind of heart. Lord, I want to know that I know. You know, what does it it say? How do we know that we know Him? It's because we love His people and we love to obey His commandments. 1 John That's powerful. 
You know, the enemy can come and he can, he can bring us down, but we, you know, when, when God gives us that changed heart, we know that we know him because we love to do his commandments. It's a joy. And when we don't, we pray. We pray fervently, Lord, change my heart. I don't want to love television more than I love you. I don't want to love my stuff more than I love you. I don't want fear of losing my stuff to keep me from glorifying your name. Lord, I hold on to this. Help me to hold on to this world loosely, to be faithful to what I have, but to hold it loosely enough that if glorifying and serving you says, let this go, that I'm willing to let it go. We pray for those things, and it's a continuous battle. And you know what God says about believers? He says that He will cause us to persevere to the end by His power, not our power. So transformation is not by our willing to love God most, but by the supernatural work of God in sanctifying us and empowering us to destroy our sinful nature, which had us enslaved before we believed. And as each believer, and here's the key, here's how this works. Here's how, you know, I had to change number two at first because I had it written differently. I want to read it to you again real quick. Living worthy of the gospel, and here's the part that I changed, is being changed in such a way that it creates unity in the church. Uh, At first I had written living worthy of the gospel is living in such a way. But being living worthy of the gospel is being changed in such a way that it creates unity in the church. So let me read this sum of number two. And as each believer becomes more and more like Jesus, we find that we do indeed have a common set of qualities that define us as a church, which are the result of us loving God most and therefore loving to obey His commandments. That's what we're aiming for. We're not aiming for for checking off boxes. We're not aiming for doing the best we can in in our own strength. We're aiming for the Lord changing our hearts in such a way that we come together in unity with one set of will and one set of affections to glorify Him. Amen? Number three. Living worthy of the gospel is fighting together for the faith. Uh, The end of verse 27, uh, he says, Fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Now, I love, I love looking at what these words mean because it, it kind of, you know, somebody told me that I'm just throwing out numbers here to give perspective. You know, maybe there's 200 English words, but there was, um, something like three times that number of Greek words that the Bible was originally written in the new testament was originally so it behooves us to 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 look at the words what do the words mean uh you know uh even even english google searches define whatever can can give so much uh life and insight anyway so the picture here is competing together fighting together for the faith competing together or cooperating vigorously together for a common purpose. Now, when I was thinking about this in, in, in an analogy, I first thought about giving uh, the analogy of one of the two NBA teams in the finals that just ended, uh, the championship it just ended, um, which was going on whenever I was first writing this. Uh, but I started to think, well, they do compete vigorously together, uh, but they are competing for fame and for pride, and for trophies, and for money. Uh, I believe that the more accurate analogy would be a well-trained and coordinated company of soldiers. They receive little fame, but at great cost to themselves, they fight for the well-being of others. They fight in life-or-death situations, and you see, whether or not you realize it, we, the church, are in a life or death situation. There are people all around us who are dead in their sin. 
without faith in Jesus, these people are going to die. And they're going to go into everlasting torment and separation from God. That's a biblical truth. And I want to tell you today, if you're sitting out there and you've never been born again, let me speak truth into your life. Without faith in Jesus, without this new heart, without this new birth, you are destined for eternal separation from God in a place of darkness and pain forever. We need to communicate Christ. And it's a life or death situation. God is calling us to come together and vigorously do what is necessary to present the gospel faithfully to the lost people all around us. Now here's the key. And we've got to get this straight. God's job is to save and reform people's hearts. But He has chosen the preaching of the gospel as the means by which lost people are born again. So this should be our greatest effort as the church to bring Him glory. To bring the gospel verbally to the ears of those who are lost and dead in their sin. That perhaps God might open their hearts and they would believe. Number four. Living worthy of the gospel is not being intimidated in any way by opposition. Verse 28, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. Now, I kind of touched on our nation, but we live in a very unique nation in the world. Uh, here in America, you can openly state that you are a Christian. You can go to church on Sunday morning, and you can ex experience very little personal affliction because of doing those things. In most countries, if you do those things, you expose yourself to loss of possessions, physical afflictions, or even death. Now, many who choose to follow Christ face the risk of immediate excommunication from their families all over the world. If you proclaim Christ immediately, you cannot have any communication with your family anymore. You are ostracized and disconnected from those who you love most. Uh, there's great opposition to our faith, and there always has been. And even in our country, which, you know, I praise God for, for the way that our nation was built on um, Christian principles and beliefs. I praise God that our forefathers, many of them, had faith in Christ. I praise the Lord that, that He has structured our nation where we have freedom to come and to worship together without fear of being killed or afflicted. But even in our nation, things are changing. You know, it used to be, uh, I've spoken to many people who are uh, older than I am, it used to be that when a believer shared his faith with an unbeliever, and the believer uh, chose not to believe and didn't put his faith in Jesus, that they would disagree. Uh, you know, the unbeliever would say, well, I, I don't agree with what you're saying, um, but there was a uh, general respect of belief and opinion. That's not the case anymore. Because today what happens is if I go up to someone, an unbeliever, and I say, Jesus is the only way to heaven. There is no other way to God but through Christ. I risk being slandered. I risk being called a bigot. I risk being called narrow-minded. I risk being accused of hate speech. And that's the reality that we live in. And that terrifies and intimidates many of us to the point where a lot of us don't even share our faith openly. We are so afraid of being labeled as not normal. And we are so afraid of being called narrow-minded or a hater or a bigot that we simply do not open our mouths. However, we are called not only to love and to serve others, but to speak the gospel of truth 
and to the lives of others. You know, I was thinking about something this morning, not in my notes. Um, you know, sometimes there's saying, there's little meme sayings that, that sound really good and truthful, but they're really just created to make people feel comfortable, <laughs> you know. And I was thinking about uh, a saying, uh, you know, um, tell everybody about the gospel and use words if possible. You know, that's that's great. That's great. Yes, we should live our lives in such a way that people see Christ. But I believe that that should be stated. Uh, tell everybody the gospel through your actions and speak the gospel continually to every single lost person that will listen to you. Because let me show you a scripture here. Romans ten fourteen. But how can they call on him to save them? unless they believe in Him. And how can they believe in Him if they have never heard about Him? And how can they hear about Him unless someone tells them? You see, yes, we are to live our lives in such a way that that, that people see an authentic Christ in us, but we need boldness to overcome the pressures of the culture, to open our mouths and speak the gospel. So as believers, we must come to a place where we expect to be misunderstood and mislabeled and slandered as we fight for the faith in word and in action. We must continually rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to not let the fear and anxiety of the opposition of this world and this culture cause us to alter our fight for the faith in any way. And this is not something that we can do in our own self-loving power, but only through the power of the Spirit putting our sinful desire to death and glorifying God. And so the key here is that we must learn not to rely on our own strength, but to rely on His power. That's the only way we get here. You know, is dying to ourselves, taking a knee, and trusting in His power. Now the text in 128b says that this type of steadfastness in the face of opposition will be a sign to unbelievers that they will be destroyed and that we will be saved. The word sign means a proof which makes the demonstration obvious, that makes it absolutely clear that this is a reality. You know, one of the, what, to me, one of the greatest realities that the Bible is true, that the, that the apostles didn't make up this whole thing about Christ uh, living the life that he lived, dying the death that he died, and then rising in power from the dead, revealing himself to the twelve and to five hundred more, and then ascending to heaven and sending the Holy Spirit in power. You know why one of the greatest proofs that that is real and that it's not made up is that eleven out of those twelve men went to their torturous death standing on that gospel. They stood in the face of persecution so that here... Historically, we know that they were tortured to their death because they wouldn't renounce that gospel. And it gives us a great witness that this Bible, this Bible that we read is true. Would you die for a lie? I know I wouldn't. But it gives us witness that they stood in the face of persecution. To me, it gives an obvious truth that this Bible, this gospel is true. So you see, while being faithful to Christ when worldly things are going well is indeed a witness to Christ, our witness is most powerful when despite loss and suffering in this life, we remain faithful and true to Christ. So I kind of summarized this whole thing into one big statement, and I've got that to go up on the screen as well. And so let's read it together. In other words, the greatest witness that we can have is a bold, risk-taking faith, not as an individual, 
but as a unified and coordinated church pushing the gospel forward in any way that the Spirit leads, but mainly by obedience to God's Word and the proclamation of the gospel to all people in spite of great opposition by the unbelieving world. Let's read that again. The greatest witness that we can have is a bold, risk-taking faith, not as an individual, but as a unified and coordinated church, pushing the gospel forward in any way that the Spirit leads, but mainly by obedience to God's Word and the proclamation of the gospel to all people in spite of great opposition for the unbelieving, from the unbelieving world. That's powerful. God's calling us to something higher. He's calling us to something higher than our television and our hobbies and our jobs and the things of this world. And it is a balance to be faithful to what God has called us to here in this life, but to have that eternal mindset, to live for eternity. He's calling us higher. Uh, so just quickly in closing, let's look at verse 29. It says, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for Him. Now, the word for is probably one of the most important words that you should look for when you're reading the Bible. Because what the word for tells you is, is that the author, the writer, is about to explain the previous verses or, or paragraphs that he just, that he just uh, exposited. He's about to explain what was just previously before. So anytime I see the word for, uh, I always try to go back and look, well, what is he about to describe to me? What is he about to give the reason for? And, and in our passage here, he's about to give the reason for why we live this life worthy of the gospel. Uh, so here uh, is the reason for the things we just read in one twenty-seven through 28. While we live that life of great loss and, 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 and self-unglorification in order to glorify God and push His purposes, specifically the gospel, forward at our own expense, at our own cost. The reason is that the suffering and opposition in this life are tied to the salvation that we have in Christ. They are mutually exclusive. It is not, I will have one, but I will not have the other. When Jesus said, uh, if anyone desires to follow after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up the cross, the burden, the suffering, the opposition, the resistance of the world. Let him take up the cross and follow me. And what was Christ's life in this world? He was a man of sorrows. He was a man of suffering. He was a man who was despised and rejected by this world. And he calls us to follow him in that. But here's the thing. In that following, in that dying to ourselves, we find our greatest joy. We find our greatest satisfaction. And we are promised in the Word of God that there will be a great compensation for us in heaven if we will lay down the things of this life and follow Him. So I want to encourage everyone in this place to leave here and begin to identify those fears and anxieties that keep you from fighting for your faith. Perhaps you need to better learn how to articulate what it is you believe. Perhaps you need God to free you from the need to be liked and accepted by others. Perhaps you need God to shift your highest affections from the things of this world, from stuff. Shift our hearts off of stuff to where our highest affections are set on Him. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And if our highest affection is on the things of this world and not on the Lord, 
and our heart is going to be for the world and not for Him. I would encourage everyone to leave this place and define for yourself what these words of Jesus mean for your life. And so let's stand, let's close our eyes, and I'm going to read this verse to you, and then we'll pray, and then we'll be done. But I just want to encourage you um, to let these, let, this, let these words of Christ sink into you and let it be the final word uh, in this message. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with His angels in the glory of His Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. I feel the Lord saying to someone, you got to let it go. You gotta let it go. Those things that you, that you hold, that you, that you, that is your drive, that is your life. Those things that cause you to prioritize other things above the church and above Him. You gotta let it go. Because if you don't, you're gonna lose your life. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? but to lose his own soul. This is life or death. Let it go. Don't lose your life over something temporary. Let it go. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it is living and powerful and sharp, Lord. God, we thank you that it challenges us, Lord. And Father, we pray that you would help us, God. Give us grace not to love this world and the things in it, uh, even near or close to as much as we love you, Lord. Father, we pray that you would change our hearts, God. Father God, that you would continue to do the work, Lord God, of giving us hearts that love you most, Lord, and love others like ourselves. God, that you would uh, set us as a church, Lord God, as indi individual members in a body, Lord, that you would uh, slowly but definitely change our will and our affections, Lord God, to set on you, to love you more than the things of this life, God, and to love to do your commandments, God, and to love one another, even as we love ourselves, God. Father, teach us, Lord sacrifice for the kingdom. Teach us, God, to uh, hold on to this world loosely, Lord, such that should following you require us to let go of something of value in this world, that we would willingly lay those things down at the feet of our Lord. God, it's not by our power. It's only by your power, God. So, Father, I pray that you would do that in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, happy Father's Day.